The Regeneration hosts its first live conversation event in Perth on Monday the 23rd of September at The Platform. It's titled, Are We There Yet? Arriving at a Wellbeing Economy. Featuring UK-based Dr Catherine Trebek, a central figure in the Global Wellbeing Economy Alliance, launched in New York City last year and co-author of the new book, The Economics of Arrival, Ideas for a Grown-Up Economy. With special guest Mike Salvaris, the Melbourne-based director of the Australian National Development Index and global leader in the development of well-being measures. All in conversation with me and you. For more, head to our website, regeneration.com. You're with The Regeneration. Exploring how people are enabling the regeneration of life on this planet by changing the systems and stories we live by. Given the rate and magnitude and speed of the changes we need, I thought, okay, let's go to the highest leverage point. What would that involve to actually like loosen the constraints of a paradigm that is, in my view, killing us? The first guest we ever had on this podcast, the former Wall Street exec John Fullerton, made reference again this week to John Elkington's product recall on a term he coined 25 years ago, triple bottom line. It reflects, he said, the growing consensus that sustainability in business is not working. Instead, the chorus for systemic transformation is growing. The voice you heard at the top was Professor Karen O'Brien and she spent decades exploring and assisting people in just this. Karen is an internationally recognised thought leader on climate change impacts and social transformation. She has been heavily involved in the work of the IPCC and shared in its 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. She's also on the Scientific Advisory Board for Project Drawdown and is the co-founder and partner in Sea Change, an Oslo-based company that has become a beacon in the space of social transformation. Karen's work focuses on the relationships between personal, cultural and systems transformations. She calls it exploring the most powerful solution to climate change. People. Yep, us. And she's decidedly positive about it, pointing out that projections of the future too often exclude the understanding that people constitute the systems and stories we live by. Joining me online from her office in Oslo, Norway, here's Karen. How is the summer over there at the moment? I'm good. It's um, it's kind of a normal summer, cool, and um, some rain, some sun. So yeah, more like yeah. much nicer than it was last year. Last year it was just like um, amazingly warm, like 30 yeah. degrees every day from May to September so really wow. creepy so yeah, everyone's kind of happy it's like it looks green again and yeah. you know we, we appreciate the coolness yeah yeah and especially in the context of what we're hearing about other parts of the northern hemisphere that are experiencing what you're talking about right, right exactly now. and uh, yeah, the France and everything and you yeah. just think wow you know something is going wrong indeed in Australia it's very acute too most of Australia has been you know flashing reds and purples on the temperature charts mm -hmm. yeah no I remember when they start when they first came up with the purple color for Australia yes. for temperatures over 50 and you're like wow that's you know exactly incredible it so. is incredible isn't it oh well it's a great pleasure to be speaking to you Karen I'm, I'm so glad you were able to find the time thank you Oh, no, thanks for inviting me. It sounds, it's really an exciting podcast that you have. Thank you. Karen, what I'd love to do, and I customarily like to start like this, is to ask, where could you trace back the early spark for you in getting you into the work that you're doing today? Mm, the early spark for me? Um Related to climate change, it was definitely the summer of 1988, that really hot summer when James, and it was when James Hansen had testified in front of a congressional committee that climate change is real. And I had started a, a, um, a master's program in environmental studies just because I was really curious about, you know, global um, change issues. So, but I think from that moment on, I realized that like, wow, there, this is something to actually, you know, um, to dedicate my life to. What were you thinking prior to that? What, what trajectory were you on? 
I um, wanted to be a, um, a diplomat and go into the foreign service. I was really interested in um, yeah, world peace. I kind of came of age during the Cold War. And um, yeah, and while I was waiting for the security clearance, I started working at National Geographic, and then I was exposed to all sorts of things, you know, hearing talks by Jane Goodall and Richard Leakey, and seeing, you know, leafcutter ants and um, documentaries about tropical forests. So so that really, you know, like triggered the interest in, um, and I, then I realized, oh, I don't even know why it rains. <laughs> I don't know anything about the science. So I really, you know, decided I really needed to understand the science of um, environmental change, and that's what then led me to a master's and then you know the climate change just became the issue right away your early interest uh, to be disposed to the topic of even world peace such a a big topic was that a particular family or school influence um i think that my mother is german and my father's um was American. And um, we lived in Hong Kong and Thailand when I was young. And then I was um, raised in the United States. And I think just kind of having uh, and having relatives in Germany and just kind of having a picture of a bigger world in my head and seeing the inequality, you know, in, in different countries um, traveling and then growing up in kind of a you know suburb of New York in Connecticut. Um, it really, you know, kind of made me aware of, um, of just, you know, the world that we live in mm. and inequ- inequality. So, I think yes. um, the peace dimension or, you know, just that how do we manage a world, you know, so that's so diverse. Indeed, yeah. I'm wondering what took you to that next level of looking at transformative change? When did that sort of kick in for you and why? I think, you know, at first I really wanted to understand the science of um, climate change. And so I looked at, you know, what the model said for food security in Mexico or food insecurity in Mexico, um, and then the relationship between deforestation and climate change, and then the relationship between globalization and environmental change, always these big picture issues. And focusing on human security and on adaptation and on the limits to adaptation, it just became clear that the biggest thing that we could do really was not adapt mitigate, um, you, know, uh, you know, adapt or mitigate, but it's really about to transform, you know, how do we change the change? And so I think about 10, 15 years ago, I started to really focus on the change part of climate change. You know, how do we actually deliberately and intentionally and consciously change if we actually know that we are the ones creating the risks? And this is where we'll delve most today, and I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I've heard you talk about the reports that will say we've got 1% chance of, of making the 1.5 degree target, but you have drawn mm-hmm. as the juxtaposition to that the drawdown hypothesis, which we have, we've spoken mm-hmm. to Paul Hawken on the podcast. So can I get a sense from you, how are you seeing where we're at now, where we're headed, but also what's possible Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a great question because I think that like where you know if you just look at the science and if you take the science seriously you see a very um, like kind of a it's, it's a serious picture there are going to be losses and you know, it is very um, depressing but when you look at those trajectories toward the future and um, you see that like there are possibilities to do better. There is such a huge difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees and 3 degrees and 4 degrees. And and so because a lot of the vulnerability that we have is socially constructed, you know, that there's a lot we can do to reduce risk socially and culturally. There's, um, you know, the, the potential that exists, I think, is so much larger and maybe not included in the models because they don't actually include humans very well, the human dimensions, you know, our, our sense of agency, collective agency, shifts in cultural worldviews, um, the, you know, just how, how social change happens in a nonlinear way as well. And I think that's where it is exciting. And that's where with like, um, you know, when someone like, you know, Paul Hawkins' Drawdown Project brings attention to not just the, you know, reducing CO2 from fossil fuels, but the hundreds of solutions that are out there. And so, yeah, so that's where I think that we might be underestimating our potential to actually respond collectively to climate change. And I think that, you know, my, my bottom line is I think we can do much better and that people matter much more than they think when it comes to responding. Yes, which seems such an important message given I guess the extrapolation from that other interpretation is to damn people, you know, we're the problem, Mm -hmm. which which takes us in the other direction, of course, gets more technocratic. and, And if that's actually the cause of our problems, then we end up going in a really vicious cycle. 
Right. And I think we just turn people into objects to be changed by some expert groups and technologies rather than the subjects of change themselves. So, and that's dangerous. How do you find people appreciate being objects of change in your experience? Well, I think anybody, you know, when I ask audiences uh, that I'm talking to, is like, how many of you have ever successfully changed anyone or how have you, or liked to be changed by anyone? And, and I think that just creates like, you know, the most immediate resistance and, um, and pushback. And that, I think, is what we're seeing in so many parts of the world right now, too, whether it's in Norway because of tolls going into the city. You know, nobody, you know, we don't, we want to take ownership of the changes rather than um, have them imposed. You've just published a new book, and it seems to have been motivated in part by the experience your students were having in the face of these varied narratives and a sense of overwhelm. Describe a little bit, I guess, in your education context, what you were finding in the students that sort of motivated you to write that book. Well, I think that, you know, the book Climate and Society Transforming the Future um, that I wrote with Robin Lyshenko is really, you know, we both teach a very similar course. I teach on environment and society and she teaches on climate and society. And we saw students really, you know, coming in with, you know, feeling like, you know, it's quite an overwhelming issue to learn about. And so to be able to present it not just as an environmental problem, but as a social issue and as a human issue and to really kind of go a lot deeper into, you know, like, how do we see the world? What is our, you know, what are the values? How do, what role do they play in the way we frame the problem and the solutions? And really kind of opening up to ha- really understand the different perspectives, whether it's geopolitical or, you know, very rational or, you know, emotional and to try to weave together in a very integrative discourse and see so that they see not just the problem but the possibilities for responding from whatever field they're interested in and we get students from around the world from different um, disciplines and things and so it's not to get everyone to become a climate scientist or you know climate activist and things but but just to be able to see like that wider solution space that we talked about. What changes in your student body um, have you noticed over Oh, even just the last 10 years since your last book. Well, I think, um, you know, I get, we get self-selected students who are interested already in environment and society. But I think, you know, the one thing that becomes apparent is that, you know, the bar has been raised. I mean, they are coming in understanding the, the issue. They've been getting it since they were, you know, four or five years old. Um, and they're connecting the, the dots in very different ways. And they are alarmed. They are concerned. Many of them are just really engaged and um, in environmental organizations. Um, but some of them also then do get um, very, you know, sad and frustrated and and so things like the extinction rebellion and youth movements are providing you know an outlet for a new type of engagement with the issue but i see many of them are um are really trying to you know figure things figure out what role they can play in it and not just um you know just through, not just through climate activism but you know whether working through politics through business through bureaucracy so there you know i think that just to see that there are many different entry points for engaging with the issue um, um, and unfortunately, I think, you know, sometimes I've, I have had um, just in last year, students coming to me just feeling very depressed about it. And so, and so I've taken two classes with you and I still feel very depressed. And, and I think that, that we have to take that really seriously as well, because it's not an easy topic to, um, to hold, you know, because, because when, and I think, you know, all of us have difficulties at times when you open the paper and you read about no water in Chennai, India, or, you know, you say these things and it's, it's real. It's not these hypothetical futures. So, so I think being able to give help students with the practices to be able to hold more complexity and to be able to see the possibility in every moment and, and also to be able to deal with the grief is really, you know, that's the challenge for educators these days. Yeah. And do you find that there is an arc with the processes you'll run them through where they do come out with a sense of the possibility that you would hope for? Um, I hope so. I think that, you know, one of, we present different discourses and framings of climate change and just being able to like start conversations with people and realize that people are coming from a different discourse, you know, if they're talking to their family and friends who aren't concerned at all about it, to have an understanding of how to talk about climate change, how to engage them with it and to be able to, um, you know, like kind of see different um, possibilities. We have the students um, often do a 30-day change experiment, Mm, what what I call the sea challenge, which we're doing now with the public. And um, as a way, you know, I started it with master students because they 
didn't really understand. I was talking about systems change and it was also abstract for them. And I realized that sometimes to understand change, you just have to make it into an object, pick one little thing and look at it. And so I had them make one change, like not eating meat or not using plastic bags or bicycling, and then look at it from different dimensions about habits and um, logistics, about social norms, about you know the, the structures that are in place that make it easy or hard, but also about their own assumptions. So really trying to kind of get them to engage with change from multiple dimensions, I think has been very helpful. And also to see how important those conversations are and how you inspire others and are inspired by others. So you feel like, you know, and that's what gets me to this idea that, yeah, you matter much more than you think, because when you may, it's not about your carbon footprint, it's about how you engage and inspire others. Such a great line, you matter more than you think. Indeed, how I first came across you, Karen, was via Sea Challenge and Sea Change because it had so many parallels with the processes we were running through in our postgraduate sustainability education in the university space and then some of the stuff we've piloted outside. So I'd mm-hmm. like to come back to that towards the end of our conversation mm-hmm. too. It's, it's such a powerful model and I'd love to hear how it's going. You talk about, I guess, that emotion that can be present within your student body that we know is certainly a factor beyond that too, in it being challenging not to be emotionally swamped by some of what we learn. Because, I mean, I noticed even earlier in our conversation, you used the word losses, and I have a sense of what to read into that, and I've, I guess I've, I've had a chance over the years to practice how I deal with that too. What about you as someone who's been in the space for decades now? How do you go through managing your everyday in the face of the challenges we're in? Oh, um, that's a great question. I think that, um, I mean, I have definitely, you know, gone have up days and down days. And if I weren't, you know, I read these things I it, before going to bed, I'll read a story about, um, you know, a coastal community or see the, you know, like hail, three, two meters of hailstones in Guadalajara. And I'll just go, oh, you yes. know, okay, keep going. Yes. But, um, but there's been times when I've just, um, you know, just had to like, you know, break down and cry about it. I remember just, you know, editing the IPCC summary for policymakers. And we talk about sea level rise in such a dry, um, you know, kind of factual way. And, and, you know, it was a Friday night and I was just like, you know, it, it really mm. hit me at the heart. And, and I think some Sometimes you just have to cry about it and then you have to kind of go, okay, but we can do better. You know, where we're, you know, it's 2019, this is where we're at. And so, you know, practices like meditation or, you know, getting away, taking perspective, being able, you know, there's a lot of things I think we can do just to be able to hold more. Because I noticed that, you know, it's like, it's often when we're stressed and tired that we can't really handle much. And that, that, you know, the the zone of disequilibria that we can actually tolerate depends very much on the context. And, I, and that's why I can see that a lot of people just don't even want to deal with these big issues because um, they've got a lot going on. So how do you actually make, you know, like get it so that we can just hold what's coming? Because, I, you know, I think that otherwise we just start to shrink and we start to think about like fast solutions like geoengineering or just giving up, just saying game over and, um and I don't think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's such a powerful thing you've just said there. Because in many ways, you're drawing on, I guess, ways of being that create a sense of internal peace and, I guess, calibration to what's most important that are practices and teachings over the eons. And mm-hmm. so it emphasizes your point and gives us a nice segue, I suppose, to the broader work that you're getting at around deliberate social transformation, because it it's really so much more than climate change. So we're in a context where the trajectory we're on indeed does require a transformation if we're to make a decent fist of things. But the focus we take to get there isn't to focus on that one symptom, if you will, ostensibly we might take our cue from the climate change situation but in a sense we need to pan our vision out a little broader rather than get fixated by that well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we need to go broader. We need to really look at climate change as a symptom of something, um, but we also need to go deeper and really, you know, get down to the heart of the situation. And that, you know, gets into what is our, the relationship to, or how do we perceive the relationship between us and others, um, or like including other species, other generations, um, et cetera. So, so that human environment um, 
perspective becomes really important. And that's what has gotten me really kind of passionate about looking at the whole paradigms that we're looking at the problem from. So my, um, my interest in quantum social change yes. has um, drawn from that idea that, you know, we're still kind of thinking of ourselves as these very, you know, like the environment is out there. It's um, something that we need to fix now and everything, but we don't necessarily look at you know, the, like the in, look from the inside out, and we really don't bring consciousness into the equation, um, especially in climate change science. It's it's kind of a um, you know within positive um, you know realism, it's just an epiphenomena. Like okay, there's just something called consciousness, but but if we you know how do we actually engage fully with um, you know like with the, those deeper dimensions and also widen out, then you start to see that it is like kind of all all these problems that we're facing world peace poverty da, 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 you know etc they're all one problem <laughs> and and that it really is like how do we get out of our own way so that we can address them better collectively it does seem tragic that we well on the one hand tragic that we leave alone the part that really counts <laughs> you know but i guess and and you certainly have framed it like this it, it's opportunity because if we haven't done that much to date then hey look over here Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, also there's so much that is happening and, you know, you show on your podcast, like, that's kind of off the radar from the everyday news media. We get lots of stories about what's going wrong. But um, but I think that, you know, the the millions of solutions <laughs> that are are out there um, and bubbling up and everything and the, the shifts are happening, um, not just within young people, but within people who, you know, have maintained kind of flexible belief systems and, and are willing to go um, explore and challenge themselves and challenge their assumptions and that I think becomes really really critical is that you know like you know how do we actually like you know remove some of these fixed assumptions about what is in the world and, and that's why I think science is doing that really fast but we're not keeping really catching up with it or keeping up with it yes yeah indeed I didn't come across you in the news either yet some of the stories I've read and heard from you have been extraordinary too is that part of the art, Karen, in this in this age? Is it to be a bit more um, discerning, selective, or, or maybe just exploratory in the media that you connect yourself with? I'm not sure. I think that it's more just like that different people are, are attracted to different stories and um, and there's kind of like the mainstream script and then there are other um, other scripts and I think that you know like what I, what I see is that many of us are saying the same things in different ways and there's so many um, like that the new story is developing the new narrative and um, and it just it's not yet to the point where it's you know being shouted out on megaphones and things and, and some of that is that that it's really is maybe hasn't been ready to be taken up. I mean, within the IPCC reports, you know, bringing transformation in there. You know, at first you got like, whoa, what transformation? That sounds scary by mm -hmm. the scientists. And then the governments were very, like, some governments were very skeptical of actually including transformation in the summary for policymakers because, you know, they have been transformed before and it gets back to like, okay, who's doing the transforming? You know, there's a politics to it because in the name of this or that, they get the next structural adjustments or the green new deals or economies or things like that that maybe isn't resonating with their own values and things. So so I really, you know, being very aware that, that there's, um, you know, there's different discourses going on. And, um, but but I think especially young people are really ready to, to hear a different story and create a different story. Yeah, let's delve into that more. How we deliberately transform, how social transformations happen. And you've dedicated a lot of time to this. What has struck you in what you've learned? I guess what strikes me is at first the surprise that we actually are um, have kind of left out the interiors of humans. You know, the, their their subjectivity that like I mean, and that's by nature. Science is looking at systems, but it hasn't actually seen us as the systems. You know, as and I think that's where the like the concept of the Anthropocene that we're starting to see ourselves as part of 
the global um, or cosmic system and things, but also that you know when we start to think of ourselves as a self-reflective part of that system, then that changes everything. You know, the whole system changes when we start to reflect on our own role in changing that system. So you suddenly start to get you know just um, I just recently I watched the movie The Matrix again. <laughs> like oh gosh, <laughs> you know here we are. <laughs> you know like that we are in the Matrix. You know like but reflecting on our own role in that. <laughs> Indeed, I watched that a while ago myself and I thought, oh wow, there's more guns than I remember. I actually remembered more that aspect of it, the red and blue pill and everything, more than the guns yeah. and the tricks. And I couldn't, I, I lost patience with the guns and the tricks after a while. Yeah, that's why I realized I never watched number two and three because I don't like the violence. But, um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I got the point. Indeed, indeed, the point. Well, that's that's something in itself, isn't it? Because you're talking about narratives and, and you know, the, the metaphors that shape how we think that we should take the essence out of that story and it should have such an impact on so many people. The details could almost subside. It's probably indicative of how we think and where indeed we can look to change, would you say? Yeah, I think I think that we there's just um, we don't necessarily question the story. We don't question anything, including the metaphors that we live by. And I think that that's very powerful because we start to like if you just look at like time is money. We waste time. We spend time. We did you know everything has has gotten such a. Um, a very material um, dimension, the way we describe it. And and that's why, you know, I think we have to start telling different stories and using different metaphors. And, and really, you know, because we live our stories, it becomes really important that we don't just focus on the dystopian future um, under climate change. You've got a framework, a three-sphered framework. How do you suggest we navigate those spheres of change? Mm-hmm. Well, when I work with the three spheres, and I've been working with someone named Monica Sharma, who's um, written a book on radical transformational leadership, and she um, she calls this a conscious full spectrum approach. And I've um, Linda Signan and I trans- translated it into the three spheres: the practical, the political, and the personal spheres. And um, and you know. As a researcher, I use it kind of more analytically. The practical things are those measurable outcomes, often the behavior and technic- behavioral and technical um, aspects that, you know, the things we move and measure where most of our attention goes. Um, and often we're ignoring the political sphere of the systems and the structures that make it easier or hard to change the internal sphere. But And we call it political because that's where we collectively decide on, you know, what, what do we prioritize? How do we organize society? You know, should it be, you know, how do we deliver water, food? Um, or produce it, um, etc. And it's often where we get those big conflicts. And the personal sphere is the beliefs, values, worldviews, and the paradigms through which we're actually seeing the system, engaging with it, and um, and actually prioritizing different things in the practical sphere. And um, and interestingly, when you know, like the the highest leverage often comes from that personal sphere. And when I say personal, it's not just individual; it's shared also through our um, you know our shared beliefs and norms. But um, working with Monica, she really, you know, she kind of pulls out from that personal sphere values. You know, what values do you stand for to make it an actionable framework? So, you know, values that apply to everybody, universal values such as equity, justice, compassion, things like that. And, you know, when you stand on that, you look at what systems need to change, what outcomes you want to see. You start to be able to have an operational full spectrum thing that, you know, you stand in these values, you you focus on you know the conversations that will shift these systems so that you reach the goals and for me it would be a um, you know absolutely minimal warming and equitable um, future um, etc so how do we get there and I think that's the um, the power lies in how we engage with systems and indeed you've drawn on one of the when I say great systems thinkers and, and pioneers in the space Donella Meadows I mean as much because of the way she could relate it to people. And for those who don't know, her 12 leverage points have become quite famous. And you've mapped your three spheres to those leverage points. Mm -hmm. What's the connection, Karen? How how do we ferment, I guess, the dance across all spheres and and all leverage points, given that they're all they're all necessary, ultimately, but, but if we focus as we tend to do too much on that practical, narrow, measurable area, but conversely, we don't want to do the other end of the spectrum without being grounded. So how do we weave it all together? 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really important point because, I mean, all of these leverage points are actually very closely linked because whatever you're focusing on for these parameters and numbers is coming from certain goals and certain paradigms um, always. And so, and Meadows is really emphasizing that that's, you know, like if you're actually looking for where to have the greatest impact, um, then this, um, the goals of the system are really important. And that's why having the sustainable development goals and the Paris Agreement are really important because they mobilize all sorts of information information flows and feedbacks and things that actually are, you know, start to move all those parameters. Um, But the paradigm through which you're actually creating those goals is important. And if we have a paradigm of, you know, continued economic growth, well, you're going to come up with, um, you know, like some inconsistencies and um, bottlenecks then versus if our paradigm is that, you know, you know, that we can have a thrivable world for everyone. So, um, and that, maybe other types of growth are also important, you know, in community, in relationships, in these more subjective, non-measurable aspects. And um, and I think that, you know, with the three spheres, it's like they're always all activated and operated, but it's where we put our attention. And so some people might say, oh, we just need to focus on the personal sphere and have everyone meditate and be mindful. And others will say, no, we just need the activism in that political sphere. We need to just march and, you know, have these um, activism um, type things. And others would say, no, we just need the technologies that will change everything. And it's it's that we need all of them. They're always connected, but they have to be based on values that are, you know, that, are, that really apply to the whole. And I think that that's where we can miss the point because you know yes we might be able to have smart cities and clean green whatever but if it doesn't apply to the whole then you're still going to have people who are displaced from their homes you're going to have a world that works for some people and not all and that's never going to work for you know that's never going to be sustainable in the long run and i think we're starting to really recognize that now and see that um it's got to be a a solution that works for everyone and how have you found that it works best uh, in terms of what people, how even listeners listening to this might think about altering a little how they do things to cultivate more of that sort of approach across the spheres. What are the things you've seen that that help do that? Well, I think it really does take practice, you know, aware, self-awareness, practice, correction, correction, correction. And, and that's where I think that, you know, like we often – like going back to what you were mentioning about time being very linear, we often think about like sustainability as something for the future, the 2030 agenda. And we think about climate change as, oh, the future trajectory, you know, by 2030, we need to have, and then almost as if like in 2029, we're going to suddenly get our, you know, get our acts together and do something rather than actually bringing it right here to right now and thinking, okay, the 2019 agenda, today's agenda, you know, like, and how do we actually, you know, bring that future world that we want want right here into the present and then we start to really stumble into the things that get in our way you know like oh gosh no here I am on autopilot again doing this Mm. again oh you know whether it's um you know like buying clothes what type of food we eat traveling you know all of these things that we start to reflect and go like wow okay there is a powerful social norm at work here oh and you can actually feel it you know and as soon as we get out of our heads with the cognitive you know with more facts data numbers and things and really start to feel you know it is uncomfortable when you go against your family's norms or your culture friends norms or your cultural norms whatever that um and then but if you have a group of people that to hold that with it starts to become more normal and that's how cultures shift you know it's like one person at a time that you and if you actually start to have those conversations you see that you know you're held in a um you know like oh there's others just like me who are concerned about this and you start to suddenly see that ah vegetarianism is becoming more normal or veganism is becoming you know it's not a um you know, like a, a an outlier, even find the foods that um, satisfy that, and that more and more people are starting to like kind of launch the alternatives, and and that's what when it comes to going back to youth activism. In a study we did, um, we did with Ellen Selbo and Bronwyn Hayward on youth dissent, we looked at three types or three ways of actually engaging, and we called one of them dutiful. You know, you're kind of going within the system, you know, according to the script and very much like kind of contributing to the IPCC reports or being a member of an organization. And then we call the disruptive um, dissent is, you know, going against the system, like the Extinction Rebellion and divestment campaigns. But um, 
the most powerful, I think, is the danger, what we call dangerous dissent, because it's dangerous to the status quo, because you're actually launching the alternatives, you're actually living them, you're actually, you know, like kind of saying like, nah, you know, we're creating a different system here. And that's where the degrowth growth movement and sharing economies and things like that are showing other ways of being in the world. And that's really powerful. And I think that we need all of the different types. We need, you know, so we need this very integrative approach. But I think, you know, and one thing that the students pointed out to me is like, they said, I'm not just in one of those. I do mm. all of them. And I think that maybe that's the real key is that in different moments, in different contexts, we can actually, we can be dutiful, disruptive and dangerous to mm. the status quo. In a sense, though, you're also saying, so with your family or your group of friends that might, where you might be coming a, a little bit of an outlier, or, or maybe that's even the wrong metaphor, a little bit of a I don't know, even leader might not be the right metaphor, but, but mm -hmm. turn it disruptive. around. Disruptive. <laughs> yeah, disruptive or even opening of possibility, a possibilist or whatever that mm -hmm. word might be. I put a positive connotation on it. But if you're in those contexts, it's, it's not to stop being with those people either necessarily, right? That, that bridging discourses is a really pivotal mm -hmm. aspect of how deliberate social transformations happen. Can you tell us a bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that that's one of the keys is, you know, like, it's very easy to collaborate and connect with people who see the world like you do and are, you know, and but when you it's it's really about how do you connect with people who don't see the world like you do? And how do you find those shared values? How do you create those bridges? How do you become and you know, I think that is really the skill that we need to be developing so that so that we're not going at each other, but that we're actually making those connections. And a lot of my research right now is really on it's called Adaptation Connects is the project that I'm leading right now on um, the CONNECT stands for combining old and new knowledge to enable conscious transformations to sustainability and that idea of you know how do we actually perceive of ourselves individuals and collectives what is that relationship and, and I think and that's you know going back again to the quantum social change and quantum social theory when you start to see that the individual is the collective we are connected through language through meaning through you know shared consciousness and and um, cultures and histories and things that um, that when you make one change you actually do, you know, it's not just your individual change, but you are creating that pathway of possibility and potential that, you know, you're, you're doing something that is, you know, through entanglement in language and as you start to see that it's happening everywhere and, um, and, and that we're not just, um, you know, one individual, like, you know, against the world, but that we're actually collectively responding. And I think that's the exciting part um, right now is that you start to see that people are waking up to that potential for change. Yeah, that's the substrate of our society that's, well, part of it, isn't it? That's so, that is so beyond view and certainly was for me. What's the best way to try and, I guess, bring more of that into view for people? Well, I think it's a little bit where you put your attention on things when you start to look for those um, connections and start to look for openings for how to do that. And again, it goes back to like, how do you, you know, getting out of your own way, because we're often just very much, you know, have habitual reactions rather than, you know, kind of responses and to be able to, to practice, um, you know, panning out to see, you know, see things from another perspective and respond differently in a situation where we've always responded to this and really, you know, like suspending judgment sometimes, um, which isn't easy, um, especially in a very um, polarized political environment. Yeah. It's really hard to, um, you know, to, to actually, you know, have that generosity to see another view, especially when you feel like so much is at stake. You know, it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is so important. And to then be having a conversation conversation with somebody, you know, and I think that's, you know, the, to really kind of figure out what do they care about, because it's, um, and also to, to not, you know, just put it on this kind of like, oh, we all need to get along, but also realize that it is political. It is that political sphere of who decides the future. And, um, and I think, you know, for me, um, years ago, doing a paper on winners and losers in um, global change, it really struck me that, you know, like, as I was 
you know, I must have been in my late 30s um, or doing this, but realizing suddenly that not everybody cares about the losers and that for some people it doesn't matter if we lose, you know, billions of people or um, a mining executive in Greenland was quoted in the New York, the New York Times as saying he doesn't care if the whole Greenland ice sheet melts hmm. because it would reveal some really interesting geology. And that kind of idea of like, okay, wow, there's some very different values at stake, you know, going on in the world here. But, but how, so how, you know, you might not be able to touch some people at that deeper level or connect with them but 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 we can touch many people and then it becomes like okay in that political sphere how do we do everything we can to prevent that melting of the greenland ice sheet because we know what the implications are for the whole for everybody including yeah. that mining executive yeah. you know it's not you know they're like that that you know to, it's it's so much more, um, you know, the, the the values are linked to the politics, and often what we're talking about really are value conflicts <laughs> at the surface, whether it's about, you know, what's going on in the Arctic or whatever, but, you know, it's, and it, it, you know, whose values count, and it, are they values that apply to everyone or just to a small group? So, so it really, you know, until we surface those deeper human dimensions, we're just kind of tapping at the at those very low um, leverage points for systems change. Yes, you know, it's a fascinating example because it is. You, you said it. It's a, it's missing the whole. So it's a, it's a lens as well, a paradigm as well as a, a value mm-hmm. set, as you will. He might have the best intentions in the world, but it's mm-hmm. it's missing that whole picture. You've mentioned quantum social theory a couple of times, Gary, so we have to come mm-hmm. back to it. And, and you had a great mm-hmm. title for an article. So in this time where it's time for a quantum leap, uh, mm-hmm. which is now such a part of our lexicon to even say such a thing, but holds true in this context, what about quantum social theory talks to what we've been discussing? Or indeed, is there an aspect of it that we haven't touched on so far? Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we go back to Danella Meadows' leverage points, often we talk, you know, the, the, we talk about paradigms as being a powerful leverage point, but that's number 11. The most powerful leverage point she talks about is the power to transcend paradigms and recognize that these are all just beliefs and, and things. And I think that that's, you know, at the given the rate and magnitude and speed of the changes we need, I thought, okay, let's go to the highest leverage point. What would that involve to actually like loosen the um, you know the constraints of a paradigm that is in my view killing us this classical enlightenment paradigm that has led to so much progress and you know um, it's, it has had amazing um, consequences but also it has led us on this um, on the path that you know they call the great acceleration um, hmm. and and this um, these pathways where we start to see all these changes and so so to start to you know look and say like whoa we we've we have moved, science has moved so much beyond just materialism that everything is just matter or energy and realism that the world, you know, that we're starting to really get to some like, wow, at the subatomic level, um, as Carlo Rovelli writes, reality is not what it seems. And my counter argument is that, yes, but social reality is also not what it seems yeah, if you nice. start to put consciousness into it, if you actually start to recognize that we do live in a quantum universe and that just because, you know, classical physics and, you know, thermodynamics and all this applies at this level, it's not all that is there. You know, it's, it's, there's some things that, um, that we haven't really seen. And I think there's some really interesting work going on in the social sciences on, um, you know, like that idea of quantum politics. I mean, quantum physics is has affected society through the computer chip. We wouldn't be able to talk today without the um, many of the breakthroughs, lasers, um, digital lights. You know, everything has been attributed to quantum physics. But we're, now, when we start suddenly start to unpack the social dimensions, we start to see things that you know, like the world isn't as it seems, and it's. But it's also that the metaphors that we use matter. A lot because you know we can talk about untanglement, uncertainty, potentiality, complementarity, all of the words from quantum physics, but also methods from quantum physics that you know quantum game theory, quantum decision making, Q methodology. There's all these different ways that you can actually predict human behaviors or model human behaviors much better because it allows for context, it allows for preference reversals, it allows for us to be more human than a lot of these very deterministic, atomistic, reductionist models can. And so, you know, being able to give ourselves meaning and to bring consciousness into the equation, then I think is really necessary at this time. And, you know, I think 
there's a lot of question marks about what you know how do you interpret quantum physics and i don't think that, that it's um there's Indeed. yeah i think the, the question marks are themselves really important yeah. but um but uh, you know i think that it's just important at this time to say, what if we got it wrong? What if, you know, a hundred years in the future, if we look back on this t- time and say, like, whoa, what, what was the blind spot in front of people? And I can imagine that it might be that, oh my gosh, they didn't actually see that they were connected. They didn't actually see their potential for social change at a time when it was so necessary. Or they may be very thankful that, oh, they did see that, they got it. And here we are, you know, in a world that is regenerated and thriving Mm. and things. And so that's where I think, you know, like, whereas it's still controversial to talk about that, especially in the social sciences, you know, we don't need physics to justify um, social sciences and physicists will say we don't need to take you know physics into the so you know like that there's you get pushback from all levels but i think just to open the questions and that's again going back to those you know questioning challenging those beliefs um and things is can be a very powerful way to open up possibilities for you know new things to emerge and that's i think we what we need now is that space to think a little bit more openly about how social change happens before we go karen Back to the sea challenge. How's it tracking? Like, what are you finding in there? Well, it's something that, you know, I, as I mentioned, you know, I started doing this with students and reading their reflection papers, and they were really just so inspiring just because, you know, to see that everyone had a very different aha moment, but they started to recognize that when they were talking to their parents about food waste, not from this moralistic, you should reduce food waste, but from a, I'm doing this experiment for my class, and I've got to write about it. And, and then the questions that popped up in the discussions, the you know, like, it, it really generated new conversations even among students in the you know the lunchroom of like oh what would I do if I were doing a change and it just shift it was it was really seemed to be a conversation shifter so we started to do it with the public and this idea um, of it's not just about change to reduce your carbon footprint and do something different but it really is an experiment with change where you know the goal isn't necessarily to succeed but to explore and when we started to see that especially the group effect that when you do it in a group um, of you know 15, 20 people, you start to hear other people's stories. And, and maybe that's what really inspired me because every student who took the, did their um, 30-day experiments, they, they stuck with me and I would start to water my plants because of Lars or I'd take a shopping bag with me because of Modit or, you know, like do things differently. And I started, it really, I started to realize, wow, that power of the stories about change. And you started to dare, like if, because just seeing that somebody else, you know, walked out of the store with a big load of toilet paper on their head because they didn't want to take a bag, you know, something like that. It's like, ah, can be done too. And, you know, it, it gives you that, the, the courage to dare because other people have done that. Or yes, somebody else has, um, you know, tried not, um, you know, not showering for um, a month or something, yeah. just swimming in the fjord. I was like, okay. So you start to see, you see possibilities that you hadn't really thought of. And, and the fun thing is that when people come up with their own challenge, it's not that they have to not eat meat because of my, you know, preferences or not eat, you know, it's if they come up with something, you know, like having a compost under their bed um, or doing, you know, someone, one person was living in a tree house, one, not using plastics of any sorts. It's something that they take ownership to and they're just just, you know, curiosity generates then lots of different insights. And so what we've done then is really trying to use it um, within schools, within high schools, within the municipalities, people who are normally not associated with environment. They don't identify as environmentalists or, you know, caring about climate change. But when, for many reasons, municipalities want to reduce car traffic into cities and, and getting people on bicycles and to realize that, wow, there's a whole different dimension or taking buses like oh this is like having a private limousine you know for <laughs> the things I'm like oh this is you know like they start to realize the different the health benefits the other things that you know the the nature of change and i think once you kind of open up that sense of agency and like like possibility then you for many people it just starts to change the way they look at things in general it's like oh what's next what can i try next and and you start to realize like when you've Often, like if you've not eaten meat for 30 days or been a vegan, at the end of you know day 31, you're like, okay, I want that hamburger again. But after a few days, you 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 have a different awareness, and you start to say, well, but there's a veggie burger, I can have that. And it might not be that it's so black and white, but over time, you just start to see that ah, oh, actually, 
it's you know I you start and there's a like a new norm settles in and over time you just start to question like why was that such a big deal back then, and I think that that's you know the nature of change is when we start to to really you know change like take what was um, given at first, this is the way it's always been, into, oh, there's many new possibilities here. And so that's where, you know, we're trying to, we're working on kind of creating a simpler version that the general public can um, can experiment with too, and and really trying to get it out there in different groups, different different um, environments, and and just seeing that it is it can be very powerful, but it's really the group effect I think that is to be to me very powerful of just really being seen and being um, you know held by a group of people who are also challenged by change. And so you're emboldened with it. You feel like that this 30-day sort of time frame for such an experiment works. It, it is worth taking this model further. Yeah, and I think there's many many um, similar examples. You mentioned that you tried it, and I, I know that there's a number of, um, th- of other things. And, and I think what we try to give along with it is a transformative program, the reflection yes. questions that relate to the practical, political, and personal spheres, and really try to almost like provide feedback and coaching so that they start to see in that, almost like a little bit of a Trojan horse for, you know, actually engaging people with change. So whereas, you know, there's a lot of attention now to reduce your carbon footprint and do this or that and and it's a it's a easy everyone has new year's resolutions and things so change is an easy entry point for getting people to start to explore those um, broader and deeper dimensions that we've been talking about so and the 30 days you know i've tried it for different lengths you know once for six weeks and 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 i think that you know 21 days is fine but you it's that last week where it becomes really boring and really hard and you want to just give up something and if it goes on too long then it's it's hard to kind of keep that momentum but 30 days is kind of a um you know there's a saying 30 days makes a habit and the research shows that it could be anywhere from 24 to 250 you know it depends (laughs) on the context but but i think that just to have that um you know a one you know one month um engagement with one thing gives you a lot of valuable insights that can be applied to many other things in your life yeah i'm just fascinated by what you said there karen around the educational context that you accompany this with because it is a if we are focusing on the changes we do in our daily lives which are clearly fundamental to becoming something we haven't been before but if we do that without new interpretive frameworks what how much would change and, and vice versa if we're just dealing with interpretive frameworks but not actually anchoring it to how we live then mm-hmm. then where have we gone to so i guess that'll be part of the challenge in making it more public how you encase it yeah yeah so it doesn't become just a gimmick or something very yeah. trivial like oh i just did this but because like i mean often we are just subject to you know, um, something like a change or something like that in developmental psychology. But when we can look at something as an object, then it gives us a lot more room for maneuver and, you know, like, yeah, degrees of freedom to engage with it in different ways. And so, but that reflection part mm. is really important and the dialogue part and the engaging, because it's not till we name it and, you know, name the issue. Oh, I felt really uncomfortable at that barbecue with my little veggie patty or whatever. Or I, um, I felt really proud because suddenly every Everybody else wanted one too, yeah, and I became, yeah. you know, and suddenly I, you know, and my best friends have been transformed, and you know, you start to see that, or oh, my mother is really interested in this, or you know, you start to see like, wow, we, you know, we are, we have a sphere of influence, and we can expand that sphere of influence, so that individual change and collective change go, you know, they're 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 they are very much entangled with each other, they go hand in hand, and um, but it's the it's the quality of the engagement with change that I think, and the quality of our conversations with others that, that really matters. It's not just, you know, and what we're right, doing right now is tending to preach and convince and to change others without actually recognizing that, like, oh, it's, you know, this is, uh, it, it, it's, yeah, change has a different dynamic um, and it can go a lot faster if you actually create the conditions that support it. With the conversation I had with Nora Bateson, Earlier this year, I ended up titling the podcast Solve Everything at Once because it was the phrase used at one point. And I'm reminded of that here in terms of, I guess, again, a seeming paradox, but it's not if your lens is sufficiently recalibrated. In mm-hmm. looking at such an approach where you're talking about the the aspects of daily life that you might not think are big enough, 
mm-hmm. but in becoming, developing a new perspective and a new way of being can make a lot of the change that you might might otherwise go away with, you know, picking out with an axe for, forever can make a lot of that just drop away. So this is the transformative element that you're talking mm-hmm. about and I guess why you hold mm-hmm. a sense of distinct possibility that one and a half degrees mm-hmm. isn't out of the question. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, I think I definitely because, you know, we are all parts of systems, whether it's a, a household dinner plan, whether it's a football t- club or a football team, a church group, a office cafeteria, you know, we can all influence these other systems. And right now we're still stuck in a very hierarchical top down. The political leaders have to make these decisions and impose them. And then you get pushback from people who do not like the changes. And, and we end up in this uh, a very, you know, um, polarized world rather than in being able to hold that both end paradox of being like wow i can you know i can when i you know like these problems are huge but i can also contribute here and that this isn't you know like it's not just one person doing that is many people um engaging with change and then suddenly those social norms shift and that's where you know the idea of a social tipping point when you know it suddenly becomes kind of like wow there was a time when doctors didn't wash their hands there was a time when people smoked on airplanes there was a time you know and all of these things it wasn't these changes didn't just happen they happened through people engaging and arguing and working towards change whether it was the flight attendants with um with the smoking on air or doctors you know like there's it, it takes people and that's where agency individual and collective agency come in and when we untap that power then we unleash an enormous energy for change and you know we talk about the energy problem but i think we have to also be looking at you know where is the energy for the solutions coming from beautiful the other thing nora she's really um scathing at times is probably not unfair to say of of a fixation with measurement measuring everything mm-hmm. how do you navigate i mean you're in the you know a real world where where um accountabilities for funding and all that are relevant and perhaps even with the sea challenge project how do you navigate that tension around what to measure and what not to measure yeah i think that you know like people do want measurements well and you know like if a municipality like okay well how much co2 did the whole experiment um reduce and it's like oh yeah and it's like oh that's not the point <laughs> you know <laughs> the point you know because because and that's the things that the like the immeasurable is you know and it might hit and sometimes i see that with students they come back three years later and go, oh, now I understand systems change or, you know, like we are all um, like, and when we try to measure like a consciousness shift, a shift in people's perspectives and things that is very subjective. And certainly people have tried to do different, you know, metrics and measurements and things. But, but I think what, what, the value what we, instead of measuring it's looking at the stories that come out looking at what people write about and that's why we have these like blog pages because they're so valuable and things like Dave Snowden's Sensemaker um, you know I can use to be looking at the micro narratives and I th- you know we're interested in looking at that to see how do you actually empower people's stories along the way to shift towards that world we want so there are ways of doing that but i think that you know i I very much agree that that rigidity of like if we're just looking at these measurements and that's it's it is what danella meadow says it's like it's often it's it's we're putting so much attention onto those parameters and numbers but we're often pushing the system in absolutely the wrong direction um, with them and you know just awareness of that of qualitative of um of kind of a the something that is more subtle than yeah. than just and, but those subtle different things will eventually be come out in the world as measurable impacts so we do need to have these goals that are you know because ice melts at certain temperatures and you know certain atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases create a different dynamic and and we're seeing the system's perspective where it's colder in your in some parts of the world and warmer in other you know it's like that idea of systems change is really important but when we start to include ourselves as part of systems then we might need to broaden our way of thinking about metrics and measurement and things and what you know science might need to loosen up some of its um the the parameters for justifying what's you know what counts as good science yeah yeah and again i'm hearing the narrative of of just bridging the domains uh, it's not for forsaking measurement but certainly not the other way around either getting captivated by it Karen, thank you very much. What a pleasure it's been to speak. What music are you going to send us out with? 
Well, okay. What I picked was a song that I grew up with of um, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Who'll Stop the Rain? And I picked that because we're really missing the music of climate change. Hey. You know, there isn't there isn't really a, you know, a it hasn't really come through in the songs that um, we're singing. We, we look back to um, older music, but I think that what we need is to really be expressing the issue in ways that connect with people emotionally and resonate with people in different ways. So I, um, I think that when I look at Who Will Stop the Rain, I think like, oh, that could be about climate change, <laughs> but it wasn't written about climate change. And The End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M., you know, it wasn't written about climate change, but it could be written about climate change. And I think we're just missing a really good, you know, the music of climate change that activates that agency in us. I went down Virginia seeking shelter. That was internationally recognised thought leader on climate change impacts and social transformation, Professor Karen O'Brien. For more on Karen, see Challenge, her new book and an upcoming webinar. See the links in our program details. I'll leave you with Who'll Stop the Rain by Credence Clearwater Revival, who might lay claim to the best change of band name in rock and roll history, having previously called themselves the Gollywogs. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.